Well, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for our time tonight. Thank you for the singing, for the testimony of your people and how you are growing them and shaping them and uh, causing them to be uh, desiring things that will enrich their life and make them more like your son. Lord, we thank you for your word and the challenge it is to our hearts and the great comfort that it brings to us as we interact with you through it. We ask your blessing on us tonight as we open your word together, that it too would once again challenge our hearts, cause us to not merely be hearers, but doers, so that we might be in honor and glory to your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know how long it's been since we have uh, been in the book of Malachi, but I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Malachi tonight. We are returning there uh, to our study of this message given by God through the prophet Malachi to the nation of Israel. And its purpose is straightforward. Its purpose is to confront them about their lack of authenticity. I've entitled this series of messages, Being Authentic as God Requires. They were lacking authenticity in how they were thinking about God, and because of that, therefore, they were lacking authenticity in how they lived for Him. And, and the primary issue was, at least initially, they were doubting the love of God for them. Why? Well, because they, in their own life, were dealing with issues that were bringing trouble and, 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 and uh, nations around them were coming against them as they had done, and their life was not filled as they saw it and from their perspective with the blessings that God had promised in the past. And from our previous studies, as we looked at chapter 1, we understand that God had already graciously reminded the nation of Israel in the beginning of chapter 1 that His love for them had not changed. They, he said to them, I have loved you, back in chapter 1 and verse 2. And they began to ask that question, right? How have you loved us? They were doubting the love of God. And God said, my love has not changed. My love is an electing love. My love is an eternal love for you. I have chosen you as my people, not because of what you do, but simply because of my mercy out of my divine election for you. And therefore, because of his love for them, he had blessed them far above their, even their own kindred. And he gives them that example in chapter 1 of Edom, and who is the descendants of Esau and all that their life was, because he did not choose to love them as he loved Isaac. And therefore, because his love for them had had uh, uh, he, he had blessed them even more than Esau. He was proving that to them by recounting to them just exactly what he had done for them. But Israel doubted that love. Why? Because of their current circumstances. And rather than see themselves as the problem, rather than look at their own heart and see where their own heart needed to repent and return to God, they did exactly what the wicked heart always does when it refuses to acknowledge sin. 
when it refuses to see it from the right perspective, the wicked heart blames God. Just like Adam in the garden when he was discovered with his wife there as they had disobeyed God and God began to confront Adam about his sin and Adam said, but it was you who gave me this woman. In other words, I'm not the problem here, God. You are the problem. And that is exactly what Israel is doing. They are blaming God. And so God confronts them. And he begins to uncover the reason for their lack of being blessed. From their perspective, they're not being blessed. And yet there is a sense in which God has withheld from them the fullest of blessings that could be. And God is confronting them about that issue and that it is they that have been practicing inauthentic worship before him. The problem with God and Israel was the reality that their worship before him was inauthentic. Now we ask the question, what was it specifically? Well, the priests were violating their calling. They had been called to a special position, and they were living lives that contradicted that profession, contradicted their calling. And so too then, the people were being led in that direction to follow in that same way. And interestingly enough, as we were going through the Old Testament minor prophets and Russ taught through Hosea, he shared with us that reality about the disobedience of Israel that when the priests go a certain direction, so go the people. And that is just what's happening here in Malachi. That is simply to say that the people are being led by those whose lives were corrupt and therefore they were living corruptly. So you're Sit there and you ask yourself, well, what were they specifically doing? I know they were generally, in the sense, not worshiping in an authentic way, but specifically, what were they doing? Well, you notice that the people were bringing sacrifices that were not according to the standard of what God had required. Remember in the Old Testament, God had required in the whole sacrificial system given to Israel back in Leviticus, this reality that they must bring when they brought offering unblemished animals, animals that were the firstborn, animals that had no blemish upon them. Even when they brought grain offering, it was to be a pure offering before God. And yet here in Malachi, Malachi is being sent by God, challenging Israel because they were bringing that which was polluted. So instead of being men of integrity, instead of the priests being men living according to the calling with which they were called before the people, the priests are actually condoning that, and they're condoning it by accepting those sacrifices as genuine offerings. In fact, the priests, it got so bad that the priests began to even disdain the very act of worship. Remember here in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, God says to them, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. He's talking about the priests and the operation of going through the sacrificial worship before a holy God. And God says, you, you sniff at it, you disdainfully sniff at it. And then he's speaking to people, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. 
So you bring the offering. He said, should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? And then in verse 14, he gets specific on the people, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. I'm a great king. My name is to be feared among the nations, he says. But why was there trouble in Israel? Why was there trouble going on amongst the people? Why was there no blessing as they saw it? It's not because God had changed. It's not because God was doing something different in his own dealings with them by way of the relationship. No, it was because they had changed. They had changed. God says through Malachi, you are not worshiping me as I deserve and as I have required. Those, both those things are important. You're not worshiping me as I deserve. I am the king. My name will be feared. And you are not doing it as I have required. Sure, you're bringing sacrifices to me, but they are not as sacrifices that I have required. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, the spotlight gets turned up. God raises the dimmer switch, if you will, on His scrutinizing eye, and He, he turns it up even brighter on the priest's. And instead of again highlighting their motives and their attitudes that he highlighted all through chapter 1, and in their worship, how their attitudes were wrong, God now, through Malachi, highlights what they should be focusing on. Not only were your attitudes and your your, uh, motives wrong in coming, but I want to show you what you should be doing, what you should be focusing on. And he gives them here in Malachi Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, two essentials that they ought to be focusing on. Two essentials that they ought to be focusing on. And I want to read these for us, and then I'll list them for us, and then we can begin to work through them. Notice in chapter 2 what he says. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen... And if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. And then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. Because the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people. Just as you are not keeping my ways, 
but are showing partiality in the instruction. So here's the indictment of God on the priests. The priests are the leaders of the people. They are the liaison between God and the people of Israel. And they have shirked their duty. They have been inauthentic in their worship of God. And so God gives them two essentials that they ought to focus on here in verses 1 through 9. Number one, the glory of God. And number two, the word of God. The glory of God and the word of God. So here in verses 1 to 9, the spiritual leaders are commanded to focus their attention, both their thoughts and their actions, on those two essentials. A love for the glory of God, we'll see that in verses 1 to 3. And then a love for the Word of God in verses 4 to 9. Let's just begin with this first one. And by the way, while Malachi is indicting the priests, we must never forget that when we read the Scriptures and we hear these truths, these truths are for us. These are universal truths that God is teaching us things about Him and about worship and about what we ought to think about how to worship God. So we as Christians are to have these two essentials in our heart and in our mind at the same time. We are to have a love for the glory of God and a love for the Word of God. Notice then as I read again verses 1 the three. Oh, now and now this commandment is for you, O priests. And if you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. And so behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. It's not hard for us to understand. It's very clear in verse 1 that God is calling out the spiritual leaders of the day. He's calling out the priests for how they are exercising their duty, how they are exercising their calling. And when we say calling, that's what we mean. We mean their life's duty, what God has called them to do. In other words, their task is to be, as I said, the liaison between the people of God and what God was, how they were the liaison between the people coming to God and they would bring the sacrifices before God. That was their inheritance. They had no physical inheritance. God didn't give them a part of the land. There were 12 that were broken up. Levi got the portion of being the God, the keepers of the temple, the people who were to do the duty around the temple, and the rest of the tribes would support them through their offerings. So they had a special place before God, and of course, it's right for God to call them out. It's right here. We shouldn't be surprised when God says, this commandment is for you, O priests. Why? Because there is greater responsibility that rests upon spiritual leaders. Those who lead the people of God, those who stand before the people of God, those who teach the people of God, those who are shepherds of the people of God, they have a greater responsibility upon them, given to them by God because of their position of influence, and therefore there is a greater expectation upon them to live lives of integrity before God. 
And you notice, notice here in verse 2, that God is concerned in all of this with one thing. He is concerned with honor. Honor to Him. You notice that in verse 2. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart, to what? To give honor to my name. This is the issue at hand. This is the contention between the nation of Israel and God Himself. They are living lives not according to their calling. And because they're not living according to their calling, they are not giving honor to God. New American, New American Standard Translation uses the word here, honor, as its word to translate the Hebrew word kavod. Kavod. But kavod is more clearly really uh, aligned with the word glory. Glory. You're not taking it to heart to give glory to my name. Right? If we give glory to God, it brings honor to God. So when we glorify God or give Him glory, we are not adding anything to God. We are not attaching anything to God that is not inherently of God, but rather we are living, we are carrying out our lives in such a way, in acts and attitudes, that His very character is seen in and through us. God and His character is seen in and through us as we submit ourselves to what He has commanded. He is honored when we do that. Some of you may know very well the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And of course, the answer to that question is simply this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is the chief end for man. And it's interesting that that principle was not a principle thought up by those who compiled the questions of the Westminster Catechism. In other words, they didn't come up with the idea and the answer to those very questions. They weren't the first to realize this, no. They asked that question, why? Because that is the chief end of all mankind as the Bible declares it. To honor God and glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And here we see it being commanded to the priests. And of course, that begs the question, what is in reality then the glory of God? What is the glory of God? And I want to take us for a moment back to the Old Testament, back to Exodus. Go back to Exodus chapter 3 for a moment. Just to touch on a little bit of this, you know these things already. But just to remind us, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is about to be called to the ministry by God Himself. And Moses, of course, is out pasturing the flock of his father-in-law. And he goes, and an angel of the Lord appears to him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. So you have this account of the story that we tell the kids about the burning bush and and all that was going on there, and this bush is there in the middle of the wilderness. It's on fire. It's blazing with fire, yet it's not being consumed. And so Moses says, 
I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. He's curious. What's going on here? How come this bush isn't burned up? I, I don't know what is going on in the mind of Moses other than that. We could speculate a lot of things. Maybe he's going, hey, if I can have these bushes that don't burn, maybe I'll build and stack them around my tent or something. You know, then I'll have fireproof. But when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So now Moses gets the idea, this is God I'm encountering. And the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction on my people who are in Egypt. I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their sufferings. And so we know the thing. He's going to send Moses down there on a mission with the elders of Israel to go and take the people out from the hands of Pharaoh. And so Moses says, To God, in verse 11, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And then Moses says to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they'll say to me, Well, okay, what's his name? Who is he? What shall I say to them? God says, you just, Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. Now go over to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. I am has sent you. Very existence itself is the idea that God was saying to Moses, listen, you just tell him existence itself. The creator has sent you. And of course, you get over into Exodus chapter 32. Moses had gone up on the mountain to be with, meet with God. God was uh, speaking to Moses that he might instruct the people. And Aaron is down, on the, down at the lower levels with the people. And of course, the people are complaining and want a God to worship. And so Aaron acquiesces and takes all the gold. In fact, he commands them to bring the gold to him. And voila, there's the golden calf. And they worship the golden calf. And Moses comes down and it's an incident in which Moses has to intercede for the people or God is going to take them out. Right? Back in chapter 32, verse 10, now let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. And of course, Moses entreats the Lord and says, why would your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Moses intercedes for the people. And of course, in verse 14, so the Lord changes his mind about the harm that he said he would do to his people. And so Moses goes down from the mountain and now Moses is angry when he sees the people. And Moses, of course, uh, confronts Aaron about it. And Aaron gives that what the wicked heart always does when it's confronted about the sin. If it doesn't want to admit it, well, it wasn't my fault. Listen, I told the people to bring the gold to me. We threw it in the fire and voila, out came this calf. 
That's what he says in verse 24. Out came a calf. Like they didn't fashion it into anything. It just happened. And so Moses sees that the people are out of control because Aaron had let them get out of control to the derision among their enemies, right? So now the people are out of control. Why? Because the priests have gone the wrong way. The people are out of control and the enemies around them are deriding them. They don't have a, uh, a fear of Israel because they don't care what they're doing. And Moses stands at the gate of the camp and, of course, begins to gather them together. And he tells those who are in charge of the temple, right? All the sons of Levi gather together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate to gate in the camp and kill every man, his brother and every man, his friend and every man, his neighbor. Wow. So the sons of Levi did it. They did as Moses instructed about 3000 men. People fell that day. And Moses, notice, dedicate yourselves today to the Lord for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow what? A blessing upon you today. You get this reality way back in Exodus chapter 3. Who, who do I tell him sent me? Tell him the very creator sent you. You get over here to Exodus 32 and there's this mass departure from worship of God. And Moses has to confront all that. And then 3,000 people die because of that in that one day. And the journey is resumed in chapter 33. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people again in verse 12. And then you get over to the verse chapter 34 and Moses, God rewrites the tablets of the law for Moses because he had thrown them down and broken them in his anger. And the covenant is renewed in verse 10. And then you begin to, to see God interacting once again with the people, right? And Moses, God cuts out these, tells Moses in verse 4 of chapter 34, look, take, cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning, went to Mount Sinai, and the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stones of tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended in the cloud, stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet by will no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren and third and fourth generation. Moses has said, listen, I want to see your face, God. I want to see you face to face. Back in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses prays, show me your glory, he says. And God says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I show compassion. But you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. I am sent you, Moses, well, show me who you are. Let me see your face. Well, I'll show you my glory. And we see 
what his glory is there in verse 6. Chapter 34, the Lord passes by proclaiming the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished. This is the glory of God on display. This is the glory of God on display. So when we talk about giving glory to God, when we're talking about us glorifying God, giving glory to God, honoring His name, what we are talking about is the reflection of the very character of God in us by our attitudes and our actions. God's very character, God, the, the, the way God is, who we, all these attributes that we see in Jesus Christ, we are to live and think like God. We're to live and think like God. And of course, we know we're talking about Jesus Christ. And this is what God is saying through Malachi to the priests. They were not taking it to heart to give glory, to give honor to the name of God. His name is the fullness of who He is. His name is the fullness of who He is. By the way, just a side note, I don't know if you've noticed this, if we have walked slowly through Malachi, these these first two lessons in chapter 1, but the doctrine of the name of God has been referred to by Malachi already six times. Six times. It's mentioned, you notice, in chapter 1, verse 6, a son honors his father, a servant honors his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? You say, how have we despised your name? Look down in verse 11. It's mentioned again. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So three times in just one verse, he mentions the name of God, the name of God, the name of God. Chapter 1, verse 14. My name is feared among the nations. Right here in chapter 2, verse 2. Right? You will give honor to my name. So the name of God is to be understood as the summation of all that God is. Who He is in His person, who He is in His attributes, and therefore all that He commands is part of who God is. And so His name is being disgraced by the priests. And we, we must realize that in our own lives. The name of God is disgraced when His commands are not obeyed. As Christians, when we refuse to obey the commands by either overt or covert realities, however it comes about, we are... We are dishonoring the name of God. His name is not being honored. 
Therefore, here the name of God was being despised by the priest. These are the spiritual leaders of Israel. You say, how? They were despising the name of God by accepting the very offerings that were coming in that were polluted. They were saying those were okay. They were accepting them as valid. They were going through the motions of serving God, and yet without any honor for God. Like I said, we need to think about that for a moment, because if we just look at this as some Old Testament story and don't try to put ourselves there in our own lives, we'll drift away from thinking and leave ourselves out of the picture. Because the reality is that any Christian whose life, and when I say a Christian life, I mean their ministry, because all of us are in the ministry in the small m sense, if you will. Our life is a ministry before God. When we don't honor God, we don't give glory to God, we are like in the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. He says, they are holding to a form of godliness, but they deny His power. That's exactly how it is. Paul was saying to Timothy, what God is clearly implying about the priests. They were saying that they professed to know God. They were saying that they were doing that. They were going through the motions of service for God. But here's the reality. Their works were proving otherwise. Their very action was proving and testing their profession. The priests were given a great privilege in the ministry. And and yet here they are in their very lives and they are unglorifying to the name of God. They're unglorifying to the name of God. And so God says, if you won't honor me, then I will curse you. And yet here in verse 2, he says, and, uh, and yet I will curse your blessings. If you will not take this to heart, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Now that's almost, by the way, that's almost a verbatim quote from Deuteronomy 28, verse 20. And I want to just show us this. So go to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 20. Notice... Beginning in verse 10, verse 15, these are all consequences for disobedience. But right? it shall come about if you will not obey the Lord the God to observe all that He commands and His statutes that I will charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Curse you shall be in the city. Curse you shall be in the country. Curse you shall be it shall be in your basket and in your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the offering of your body and the produce of the ground, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock. Curse shall be when you come in. Curse shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed, till you perish. 
quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. You have dishonored me. That's what he's saying. Now, turn over to Leviticus. Turn back a few books to Leviticus. Leviticus 26. Because this is where we find the the law concerning blessings for obedience and cursings or penalties for disobedience. And you can go through chapter 26 and you find all of these things that God had, had told them in the law. This is what you should do, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can go back and read the Ten Commandments, all of those things. And here he's laying out all the things that will bring cursing upon your life and those things that will bring blessing upon your life. Over and over and over again, it's, it's one thing after another that if you do this, there'll be blessing. If you don't do this, there'll be cursing. But notice, notice the grace of God. Go over to verse 40 of chapter 26. Right? And we'll just back up a little bit. He says, but you will perish among the nations and your enemies' uh, land will consume you, verse 38. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of their enemies and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. Now notice the grace of God. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in the unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they may make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. So in spite of their sin, in spite of all that they're doing, in spite of the dishonor brought upon God, if they would just turn from their wickedness and repent of their sin, acknowledge their sin, repent of their sin, God would bring forgiveness. But as we see here in Malachi, that is not what they are doing. That's not what they're doing. And we notice that God has already brought his judgment. His judgment has already begun. Why? Because he knew their heart. He says, indeed, at the end of verse 2, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. You're not taking it to heart. You see, the penalty for failing to listen to God, the penalty for failing to respond to what God commands is the curse of God upon them. It's the curse of God. God says, have it your way. Have it your way. Three times in Malachi's prophecy, he mentions to them about cursing. Three times. Or disobedience to God. Why? Because God's name is serious. God's name is serious. It's a sobering reality to worship God. And nothing shows him greater disdain than for those whose business it is to honor him to live disobediently before Him. 
Notice how he carries out his judgment upon them. Behold, talking to the priests, so he's talking to the Levites, really with the specificity of those in the, the, the line of Aaron. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. That's what would happen to all the entrails, to all the, the non-edible portions of the sacrifice. They would be taken out of the camp. They were the refuse of the animal. And God is saying to them, listen, that kind of refuse is going to be spread on your faces. God says, you think it's bad now? Just wait. You think there's no blessing in your life now? Just wait, because the very privileges that you have, the very blessing that I've given to you, even that is going to be taken away from you. God is describing their sin and its consequences in a very graphic way. You defile my name, then you're going to be defiled. I'm going to spread refuse on your faces. God says, I'm going to spread the garbage of the sacrifices on your faces. Does he mean that literally? Are they literally going to have the garbage of the sacrifice spread on their face? No, but their disgrace will be in the same way as if they were the disgraced parts of the sacrifice. Their lives would be before the people that way. And not just disgrace, but even more damaging is the last part of verse 3. And you will be taken away with it. You will be taken away with it. In other words, they were going to be removed. They were going to be removed from the presence of God. Now there's a serious lesson for us about worship. This is a serious lesson for us. How serious does God regard how we worship Him? I believe so serious that even in our day, we have seen ministries large ministries, once thought of to be a beacon of light to the evangelical world, completely gone, completely obliterated, off the map, not around anymore, only to find out in the end that the name of God was being profaned in the lives of those who were leading it. So here's a reminder to all of us that we are to love the glory of God. We're to uphold the glory of God, regardless what that might cost us. The priests should have not accepted those sacrifices, even if it might have costed them part of the share of whatever, even if the people would have stopped sacrificing, they should have upheld the glory of God. But they did not. We ought to uphold the glory of God, and we ought to worship Him as He requires But also look at number two. They were called to the second essential practice. Not only love the glory of God, but secondly, to love the word of God. Notice verses four through nine. Then you will know. I'll do this. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you. That my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. The bad priest is going to get rid of, but his covenant with Levi is not going to go away. He's keeping that. It's an eternal covenant. With Israel, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. 
True instruction was in his mouth and righteousness was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. Why? Because the, priest, because the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you've turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I've made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you were not keeping my ways, but were showing partiality in the instruction. You can clearly see where the problem was, can't we? We clearly see where the issue lies. It's highlighted for us in clear terms right there in verses 7 and 8. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way and you have caused many to stumble by the instruction. That which God had said was not being listened to. And the judgment needed to come. Why? So that they would have clear understanding of what God said. Then you'll know, he says in verse 4, that I have sent this commandment to you. His commandment was clear. It was clear through his covenant with Levi in verse 5 here. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them, that is to that priestly line, to him as an object of reverence so that he revered me. Stood in fear of me, that's the issue. Stood in awe of my name. Stood in awe of who I was. He understood who I was. God isn't saying that all who were in the tribe of Levi were priests. He's not saying that here. In fact, they came from that narrower line in the tribe of Levi that I said were the sons of Aaron. Those were the priests. All the Levites served around the temple, but not all of them were priests. Only the line of Aaron. But God is saying... Here is that his covenant was made with all who served around the temple. All who served him in the temple. Not just those who served at the altar. Not just the one who stood up to teach. That's why I said earlier, I believe this is for all believers. This isn't just for those who are leaders in the church. Right? Because in the church of Christ, what do we do? We all serve. In fact, if we follow the words of Peter, we are a kingdom of priests. And so you notice that God's covenant with Levi carried with it this message of life and peace. Life and peace. Life and peace were not guarantees. They were not guarantees, but they were rather gifts from God. Gifts given to us by God. Life and peace are for those who walk authentically with God. Right? The Bible says, right, when your sins are forgiven, you have peace with God that surpasses all understanding, Paul said in Philippians. When we have our mind rest on the things of God, we have a peace of God. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. It's life and peace. They're not guarantees, but only for those who are in Christ. And this is what the servant of God does. This is what the servant of God does. They are reverent before God and fear God. Right? To him, I gave it to him as an object of reverence, God says. So he reveres me 
and stands in awe of me. And therefore, true instruction is in his mouth, and unrighteousness is not found on his lips. He walks with me in peace and uprightness, and he turns many back from iniquity, because the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. Men should seek instruction from his mouth. Why? Because he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. He speaks the truth with his mouth. He preserves knowledge. He unapologetically expounds God's Word. He doesn't seek the praise of men. He is not partial to to who wants to hear what, when. No unrighteousness is found in His lips. This is what ministers of God do. We speak truth. We speak truth in love, but we speak truth. Beloved, that's why here at this church, we continually exhort and challenge each one of us to rightly divide the Word of God. To rightly divide the Word of God. To rightly handle it. To study it. To know it. To accurately explain it. Listen, as a a pastor and as a, a preacher of the Word of God, it would be very easy very easy and it's very tempting at times to say what people like to hear to say what only makes us feel good to say what they believe is righteousness for themselves but a true servant of God doesn't do that a true servant of God proclaims and teaches the word of God They do not turn to the right. They do not turn to the left. They say what God says and they say no other. That's what we do. They say it in season. They say it out of season, whether it's popular, whether it's not popular, whether any believe it or whether it is relevant in the minds of people for the day. Why? Because the goal of speaking the word of God to others is so that others will know God. That is the goal. That they might know the God that they one day will stand before and have to answer for their life, and through that they might come to repentance. That they might be led to turn away from their iniquity. We are to speak the truth as we live the truth. And notice that it's by a life of authenticity that the knowledge of God is preserved. For the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth. Why? Because he's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Authenticity. He's a man of authenticity. Men come to know God and men seek true instruction from the messenger of God. That's not what they were doing. That's not what they were doing. But as for you, verse 8, you have turned aside from the way. You see, the way is, is the direction of their life, the calling of life, the ministry of life, the way. They should be leading people into the instruction by which they can turn back from their iniquity. But that's not what they were doing. They turned aside from that way. And they caused many to stumble by the instruction. They were not speaking the truth. They were not giving what God said. They were altering it for the sake 
of the people, they were accepting sacrifices that they should have never accepted. They had gone so far away from the covenant of a God that now instead of truth, they were causing others to sin by means of the instruction they were giving. Why was there no blessing? Why was there no blessing? Was it because God had changed? No. Because they had, in the words of John to the church in Ephesus in Revelation, they had left their first love. They had left their first love and the consequences were severe. Listen, beloved, spiritual influence is serious to God. Spiritual influence is serious to God. Why? Because it affects so many of those who are his. It affects them. What did God have to do in order to quiet the storm in Israel at the time? The sinfulness among the people, what did he have to do? Verse 9, I have made you despised and abased before all the people. I've made you despised and abased. Fortunately, fortunately, by God's grace, the priests had been corrupt long enough that they had even lost the respect of the people. Whatever their own motive was for accepting polluted sacrifices, whatever their motive was for showing partiality in what they were saying to the people rather than calling sin, sin, whatever was their motive, they are now reaping what they had sown. I was thinking about this in modern day ministry today. It's not, it's not a sad day in my mind when I hear of some Christian charlatan being unmasked and now disgraced among those who used to follow him. It's not a sad day when I hear that. I wasn't sad when years ago, the church in Seattle, under the direction of Mark Driscoll, was uncovered in his leadership and his unrighteous life, and and they removed him. I wasn't sad about that. I was sad, I guess, in a sense that that his life was being so exposed in that way, because, but it was his own sin. He, he did it. It was his own life. And yet here he was leading others into sin. I wasn't sad when he was removed because it hurt so many other people. So when that happens, the people are protected. The truth, the name of God is honored. I say that just to simply say that we have to be cautious of that happening in our day. We have to be cautious of that. Where some church leaders are hailed as if they are the reason for the church rather than God is the reason. We live in this this bizarre Christian economy today where celebrityism seems to be as much in the church as it is outside the church. We need to be careful Because oftentimes we'll hail church leaders as the reason why the church is what it is, rather than give honor to God. Far too many and far too often ministers within evangelicalism are not authentic servants of God. They don't give the whole counsel of God because they do not walk with God and therefore they do not honor Him or His Word. And the consequences sadly are devastating. 
And so the fact remains, as the preaching of the word of God goes, so goes the church. It's a vivid example here. As the priest goes, so go the church. Sometimes we wonder why there's so many problems today in evangelicalism at large in the Western world. And the reason is, is because as the preachers go, so go the church. When we do not love and thereby do not seek God's glory and love His Word, then the church and the culture is in trouble. The church and the culture is in trouble. Therefore, it is essential that we individually and corporately live for the glory of God and live for a, to speak the truth in love, remembering that not only are we accountable to God for ourselves, but we also are accountable to God for those who are hearing us. It's the lesson that we get from Malachi's message to the people of Israel. By the way, you notice... Chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with what? With a curse. God, even in the midst of all of this, is still being gracious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you tonight for your grace. As Christians, we stand in grace, your word tells us. We stand in grace. And your dealings with Israel are a, a really a, a larger picture of the reality of what you require. What you have equipped us with new heart, do what you say, live for you, be obedient to you. And oh, we are so thankful, Lord, for your grace that in Christ we can never be lost. Lord, we trust you. We desire to be faithful to you. Lord, motivate us by your word to do that that we would not be, as we heard tonight, just hearers of the word, but doers. Help us to think through these things and begin to put into practice in our own lives this reality whereby we love your glory and we love your word. Because of that, we want to do it. May we do that this day and continue to do that each and every day until the Lord comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.